Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. We are winding down our study of 1 Peter, which we've been diligently working through over the last six months. We come to chapter 5 this morning, and I'll be reading the first seven verses. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. You've probably answered the question at some point in your life, either in one of those online personality studies or maybe in a small group icebreaker question. But have you ever heard the question, if you were to be an animal, what kind of animal would you be? If you've ever heard that question or if you've ever gotten a result from one of those personality studies or something, you're always hoping for some really kind of impressive animal, aren't you? You know, you're a lion or you're a tiger or you're a bear or at least you're a Labrador retriever. You know, some, some animal with some noble or admirable qualities. But have you ever noticed when Scripture wants to apply an animal to God's people, what animal does Scripture use? Sheep. Sheep of all things. I don't think any of us would choose to characterize ourselves by a sheep. One defining characteristic of sheep is that they are almost totally helpless. Sheep are utterly dependent on their shepherd for all the essentials of their life, food, water, protection. Sheep have a tendency to wander and get lost. And they also have strong herding instincts so that when one sheep wanders and gets lost, they all tend to follow and wander and get lost. Sheep are totally defenseless. Matter of fact, the only thing a sheep can do when a predator comes on the scene to protect itself is to run. And if you've ever seen sheep run, you know that they don't have much protection in that regard either. So if you take the Scripture seriously and you see yourself as sheep, that should cure you immediately of any real sense of self-sufficiency or self-reliance. Sheep are helpless. Sheep need a shepherd. That's the other overarching theme of Scripture. Sheep need a shepherd. Listen to this comment that Luke make, or Matthew makes about Jesus as he looked at all the people that were flocking to hear his teaching and to witness his miracles. This is what it says in Matthew 9, verse 36. 
When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You hear the language of Ezekiel 34 that we read moments ago, where God promised to seek out the lost sheep and to shepherd them himself. And here's Jesus looking at the people coming to him and saying, they're lost, they're helpless, defenseless. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. It adds so much weight to the statement when he later says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Well, here in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, Peter Peter calls Jesus Christ the chief shepherd. That's an interesting title. It's unique to to this uh, verse where Peter calls Jesus the chief shepherd, not the good shepherd, but the chief shepherd, which means that he is the good, great shepherd over other shepherds. And that's one of the most remarkable things about the kingdom of God and the way that God accomplishes his purposes in the world that among the flock of these lost, helpless, straying sheep, Not only does Christ, the good shepherd, gather the sheep, feed the sheep, nurture the sheep, but he also calls some of those sheep to act as shepherds for the other sheep. And that's how his kingdom grows, is that he raises up leaders among his people to shepherd, by his example, other sheep. This passage that we're looking at does not give all the qualifications for leadership in the church. It's not an exhaustive list. Matter of fact, there are many things, many spiritual gifts, many theological requirements, many leadership skills that we should look for in leaders that aren't mentioned here in this passage. But I think in many ways this is the most important passage, one of the most important passages in Scripture, in God's Word, about what He expects of the under-shepherds, of the chief shepherd, of those who are to be leaders in the church, because here Peter talks about the heart of the under-shepherd, the one who serves as a shepherd under the authority of Christ, the good shepherd. The heart of a Christ-like leader. And Peter gives us here three essential characteristics to look for. Now, it's always tough to preach a passage that's directed at elders or directed at deacons because I could, if I preached it as a, you know, as, with the focus that the passage has, I'd be speaking only to a small group here. But I purposely kind of turn around and say, how about you? What kind of leaders, what kind of elders, what kind of deacons, what kind of ministry leaders should be, you be looking for? What kind of spiritual leaders should you have in your life? What does godly, Christ-like leadership look like? The first thing that Peter says, interestingly, that those who serve as shepherds under Christ the chief shepherd should lead eagerly. Eagerly. Verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Those who lead you spiritually should be not just willing leaders, but eager leaders to serve. I often have thought that that's one of the many signs of a healthy church is where 
you have people that are eager to step into responsibilities of leadership. That's a sign of great health in a vibrant ministry. The Aristotle, a long time ago, talked about how to communicate a, an effective message. And we talked about this in our Bible study leadership uh, seminar yesterday morning. Aristotle said there's basically three elements to an effective communication of a message. The first is the logos in the Greek, which by that he meant, uh, Aristotle meant, a rational, logical, well-thought-out uh, message. Of course, scripturally speaking, the logos is the word of God, or Christ particularly. Secondly, Aristotle said ethos is the other, another component, which ethics, the lifestyle, the example of those who, the one who's trying to communicate the message, the reputation, the integrity of the one trying to communicate the message. And the third element was pathos, which is the passion, the emotion, the appeal to emotion in the listener and the, and the, the effect of the passion in the one communicating it. And so if we are to communicate a message, which is the gospel, there needs to be a passion in those who are the leaders among God's people so that that passion might be reflected in the flock, a willingness, an eagerness to serve. Now, of course, you can be eager to serve for wrong reasons. Many of those who are eager leaders in the church are actually, in God's eyes, hirelings, and some of them are wolves in sheep's clothing. So what kind of eagerness is the Lord looking for? Well, Peter, I think, indicates that in verse 1 where he says that he longed to be a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. There's Peter's motivation. He longed to be a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. He's talked a lot. We've mentioned it many times. How many times Peter talks about the second coming of Christ. He was so focused on that. All the leaders in the church should be so focused upon the second coming of Christ in the glory that's to be revealed because they know that that is where the reward lies. Not in this world. Not in this life. In verse 4, Peter again refers to the second coming. He says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. It's that unfading crown of glory that's eternal, that is going to come with Christ when He returns. That's the reward that the spiritually mature leaders in the church should be striving for. A passion to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Paul was driven by that kind of reward. Anytime Paul talked about what his motivation, about what drove him, he always was pointing to the coming of Christ. And the end of the struggle. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he lays out that example for the young man Timothy that he was mentoring. He says in 2 Timothy 4 verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You notice what's true in these passages is that Peter, neither Peter nor Paul are saying it's wrong for leaders to lead by seeking a reward. It's not wrong to want gain. 
It's not wrong to want a reward. It's not wrong to want a crown. The question is, what crown, what gain, what reward are you striving for? What are you looking for? What do you really want? What what Peter condemns is seeking after shameful gain. If you have the old King James, you might remember that's that phrase, filthy lucre. (laughs) That very colorful phrase that the King James has there. And it's speaking about Greed. It's speaking about desiring earthly gain. Either money or possessions or power or influence or adulation. Something from this world. Truly mature Christ-like leaders don't live for the immediate reward that this world has to offer, but they live for the glory and honor of the coming King, Christ Jesus Christ-like leaders get their pleasure and joy in seeing God glorified and His kingdom extended. Christ-like leaders get their joy and satisfaction out of seeing God's people draw near to Christ and become more like Christ and know Him more intimately. That's the reward. And that's eternal. And so Christ's Under-shepherds lead willingly and eagerly because they're seeking the right reward. Secondly, Peter says, Christ's under-shepherds lead by example. By example. Look at verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. In other words, not leading by force. Not seeking to coerce God's people in any direction, but leading them by example. To domineer is to intimidate, to use threat, to use manipulation or political pressure to try to get your agenda accomplished. But the Scriptures make it clear that shepherds are not cowboys. Cowboys drive the cattle. Shepherds lead the sheep. Think of the teachers and mentors who have most impacted your life. Who are the teachers and mentors that have most impacted your life? Has it it been those people in authority, those who have taught you, who have led you, who have coerced you in the direction they want you to go? Or those who have modeled obedience that have had the biggest impact upon you? You see, the only external pressure that is in the authority given to those who lead in the church is example. The visual cues of the example of your life. If you're a leader in the state, Scripture says you're given the power of the sword. And with the power of the sword, you have the ability, biblically, to coerce, to restrain. But that's not how you lead in the church. You lead by example. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. There's the motto for a leader. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Understand that's very difficult for a leader to say. Follow me as I follow Christ. Be like me as I am striving to be like Christ. But that's what we're called to. Paul said to Timothy again in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, Command and teach these things. 
Set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. That's what it means to be a leader in Christ's church. If you look at the qualifications that are given often when we think about uh, electing elders and deacons in the church, we go to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, and we look at those qualifications that are listed there to see if we have any leaders that have the, the, the evidence of Christ calling upon their life so that we can elect them into office. And if you look at those characteristics, I've listed them out when I do leadership training, I go through those, those generally speaking, about 15 characteristics that are given there. And almost all of them, about 13 out of the 15 of those characteristics, deal with character, with integrity, with ethics, with righteousness. The emphasis in leadership in the church is on Christ-like character so that you can lead by example, so that you can model, so you can be a living example of the words that you teach. So Christ's under-shepherds are to lead eagerly. They're to lead by example. And thirdly, and I think in many ways most importantly, Christ's under-shepherds are to lead humbly. Did you notice the emphasis on humility in this passage? It's no coincidence that after giving instructions to the elders of the churches, Peter immediately exalts humility as the path to greatness. God is opposed to the proud, but He exalts the humble. In verse 5, he says, Clothe yourselves with humility. The Greek word there that's translated clothe actually means tie on. Tie on humility. And you get that sense, you almost get a visual picture of a, of a servant tying on an apron. Or I think more appropriately, you get a vision, a, a visual image of Christ standing up from the Passover meal and tying a towel around his waist and leaning down to wash the feet of the disciples. That very well might have been what Peter had in his mind when he thought about tying on humility. What does it look like for a leader? In Matthew 20, verses 25 through 27, Jesus said to his disciples, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They domineer. They coerce. They manipulate. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Humility in the church begins with humility in the leadership. If the leadership of the church is proud, you're not going to find humility among the people. We tend to exalt people. That's how worldliness creeps into the church is we tend to exalt people into leadership positions that the world recognizes as leaders. Because we're looking for worldly characteristics. And one of those worldly characteristics we often look for is self-confidence. Somebody who's bold and assertive with a lot of self-confidence, we think, wow, that's a leader. Let's put him into a position of leadership. You know, it's interesting. A number of years ago, a lot of you are familiar with this book, Good to Great, 
It's a classic on corporate leadership. Uh, author Jim Collins did a, an extensive study of the most successful corporations and companies and, and CEOs, leaderships in these companies. Um, and, and what's interesting is he, in one chapter early in the book, he talks about what he calls a level five leader in a company, a level five leader. In other words, somebody who's hit the excellence level in leadership because it has the five, what he identifies as the five key components to excellent leadership. And it's amazing when you think of, this is, this is from, this is a, out there in the secular world. It's from that perspective. I don't know where Mr. Collins is coming from in faith, but he certainly has a biblical insight into leadership. Let, in, a, in the summary of that chapter, let me read some of his quotes about what a level five leader in a company is like. Listen to this. Level five refers to five-level hierarchy, a five-level hierarchy of executive capabilities with level five at the top. Level five leaders embody a paradoxical mix of personal humility and professional will. They are ambitious, to be sure, but ambitious first and foremost for the company, not themselves. Level five leaders display a compelling modesty are self-effacing and understated. In contrast, two-thirds of the comparison companies had leaders with gargantuan personal egos that contributed to the demise or continued mediocrity of the company. Level five leaders look out the window to attribute success to factors other than themselves. When things go poorly, however, they look in the mirror and blame themselves, taking full responsibility. The the comparison CEOs often did the opposite. They looked in the mirror to take credit for success, but out the window to assign blame for disappointing results. One of the most damaging trends in recent history is the tendency by boards of directors to select dazzling celebrity leaders and deselect potential level five leaders. I'm just astounded by the insight of that, that humility is really the defining characteristic of what he says are the most capable, most gifted, most successful leaders in the corporate community. How much more so must it be in the church of Jesus Christ? You think about Peter, one who wrote these words about humility. If you read the Gospels carefully, you see that Peter was a proud, self-sufficient man when Christ met him, when he met Christ. Peter was a go-getter. He was the one quick to speak up. He was the assertive one. He was the apostle who jumped out of the boat to walk on the water to Jesus. He's the apostle who had the boldness to get into Jesus' face and tell him not to go to Jerusalem. He's the apostle who sidled up to Jesus and whispered in his ear, you know, when all these other guys deny you and depart from you, I'm going to be there by your side. He's the apostle who pulled out his sword in the Garden of Gethsemane and cut off the ear of the servant in an effort to boldly defend his Lord. Peter was naturally the kind of guy that you'd want as your lead salesman. He had CEO written all over him. He's the kind of guy you'd want fighting the good fight in the Senate or maybe even as the president. He's the guy you'd want as the quarterback of your football team. 
But this is the guy who denied three times that he even knew Jesus Christ, the third time when he was confronted by a lowly servant girl. Peter was a broken man after that. His pride had been devastated. His self-sufficiency and self-reliance was gone. He had been sifted like wheat, as Christ had promised he would be. There's great comfort for those of us who have had great failures in leadership because when you look at the whole picture, you understand that that humiliating defeat for Peter was an essential part of his training and preparation to be a leader in the church of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1. Peter identifies himself in two ways as he addresses the elders in the church. He, first of all, identifies himself as a fellow elder. I am your fellow elder. This is Peter we're talking about. He doesn't address them. He doesn't say, I'm the bishop. He doesn't say, I'm the pope. He says, I'm one of the fellow elders among you. Yes, he was an apostle, and he had special rights and privileges and callings because he was an apostle. But when he wants to talk about leadership, he says, I'm just one of you. In terms of the normal operations of the church, he was on an equal status with the other elders. Secondly, he calls himself a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I was really struck by this phrase. A witness of the sufferings of Christ. He wants to identify himself, so he calls himself just another elder, and then he calls himself as one who witnessed the sufferings of Christ. He points to the lowest point of his life to identify himself. Because it was during the sufferings of Christ that he denied three times that he even knew him. His moments of shame is what he points to to identify himself. But he does, he's not wallowing in shame when he says it. He understands what the sufferings of Christ meant for his status in life. Peter, as we've mentioned many times as we've gone through this study, Peter Peter mentions the sufferings of Christ eight times in this letter. This is the man who at one time despised the idea of the Messiah suffering and rebuked Christ for talking that way. And now he's obsessed with the sufferings of Christ. He's obsessed with the cross. Remember what Paul said? Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul boasted only in the cross. That's what Peter's doing here in chapter 5. He's boasting in the cross. It's the sufferings of Christ that has made him who he is. You see, true humility is not insecurity. True humility is security and confidence, not in yourself, but in the cross. Leaders must be confident. You cannot lead if you're not confident. But that confidence does not come from your own abilities, your own accomplishments. That confidence comes from what Christ has done for you, the sufferings of Christ for you. You see, in order to be 
a great leader in the church, you must reach that place of brokenness and dependence upon grace. The call to shepherd the sheep of Christ is given to restored sinners who know what it means to live by grace. I heard of a pastor who, in his office, in a prominent place behind his desk, put a big picture. The picture was a, a, a real photograph. And in that photograph, there was a, an old wooden fence post, a line of fence posts. And on the middle post in the picture, there was a pretty good-sized turtle sitting there resting on top of the fence post. You've probably heard this story before. Somebody came into his office one day and looked at that odd picture on his wall and said, you know, I have to ask, why do you have a picture of a turtle sitting on top of a fence post? And the pastor says, I need to look at that every day. Because if you ever see a turtle sitting on top of a fence post, you know that he didn't get there by himself. And to him, that was a reminder that his status was a status that was given to him by grace. When Peter, after Peter denied Christ three times, Jesus met with him after his resurrection, and he said to him three times, Do you love me? He made Peter affirm it three times. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Do you remember what Jesus said in response? Feed my sheep. You're ready now, Peter. You've been broken. You've been humbled. You understand the cross. You understand grace. Feed my sheep. Peter says in verse 2, Shepherd the flock of God. Feed God's sheep. They're not yours, Peter. They're not yours, elder. They're not yours, pastor. They're God's flock. Do you love me? Yes, you know I love you, Lord. Then feed my sheep. Paul said to the elders in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. If that doesn't make an elder or a leader in the church tremble to understand that you've been responsible, you've given the responsibility to care for the flock that Christ the Good Shepherd paid for with His own blood. Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness serving as a literal shepherd. It was leadership training. And when Moses was about to die, listen to his la- part of his last words from Numbers chapter 27. He prayed, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as a sheep that have no shepherd. Jesus Christ was the answer to that prayer. But the elders and other leaders of your church are also an answer to that prayer. Imitate them as they imitate Christ. Find God's chosen leaders in your midst. Look for men with a passion and an eagerness to serve Christ in His kingdom. Find men who have 
a Christ-like lifestyle that is worthy to be followed. And find men that have the humility that understands that you must be confident, you must boast, but boast only in the cross of Jesus Christ. And as one of my mentors once told me, understand that the ceiling, the upper limit of the spiritual development of the congregation is always going to be determined by the Christ-likeness and maturity of its leaders. So choose well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the leaders that you have raised up over this body of believers. And may they conform to those ideals that Peter has laid before us this morning. And Lord, help all of us to pray for our leaders faithfully, even daily, that these things might become a reality in their lives, that the church of Jesus Christ might prosper and continue to be vital. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.